0: Listen now to the Word of God, Romans 13, verses 8 through 14, page 948 in your Pew Bible. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The Word of God. We hear several things as we read this text. And I'm jumping in right now this morning because I have much to say today. And it's going to be in a little different proportion than normal. Easily half, if not two-thirds to perhaps Seventy plus percent of my sermon today will be introduction. All right? Our time in the text uh, will eventually get here, but if you see the outline in the bulletin and you think, "Wow, we've been at it a while," we must be under point two by now. We might not even be under point one yet. All right, there's just several things we have to talk about to set up this text. It's in such a significant place in Paul's letter. And it says things to us that are so important. We need to take some time, put it together, let it give us the sort of help we actually need, not least right here in Romans 13, and then move on into the text and talk a bit about what it says and draw a brief conclusion, all right? So we're hearing several things as we read in this text. We hear, for instance, the heart of New Testament Christianity in just these few verses and you hear the significance as it passes love each other there it is the heart of New Testament Christianity repeated very shortly below in verse 9 just as Jesus stated it you shall love your neighbor as yourself just as it's stated from the Old Testament law Leviticus 19 verse 18 then it's stated in the negative in the very next verse Love does no wrong to its neighbor. So this is the heart of the first paragraph, verses 8 through 10. Just love each other. That's the manifestation of New Testament Christianity. I spent yesterday afternoon talking with a group of elders at another church just about shepherding and what it looks like, how elders shepherd and what a mature body of believers looks like And this is the heart of the matter. When we grow together in the doctrinal unity and oneness of mind that Ephesians 4 talks about as marking the mature church, it's one of the first characteristics that's mentioned right there in that text. We speak the truth to one another in love. We love one another. This is the heart of what happens in us. As we are claimed by Christ. We love him and we love one another. So that's paragraph one. We also hear in this text that familiar call to wake up. Verse 11. It's not stated as a imperative there in that way. But the reference. Language used often to capture the Christian's readiness for Jesus' return. We see that wake up charge. We hear it from Jesus a number of times. Matthew 24 in his uh, Olivet Discourse. In Mark's record, we hear it in verses 33 through 37 several times. Wake up. It's recorded again in Luke 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, Revelation 16. This is familiar language to us. Wake up. It captures the Christian's readiness for Jesus' return. A readiness that shows itself right here in this text in a morally upright biblically virtuous lifestyle that's what it looks like to be awake more broadly in this text we hear a a clear return to the teaching of the the second half of chapter 12 you remember it began with verse 9 let love be genuine and then it talked about what love looks like in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ, and even with our enemies, and it finishes in verse 21 of chapter 12, hold fast to what is good. It really is the case that 13, 8 through 14 could almost be just the conclusion of that paragraph, 12, 9 to 21, making the insertion of verses 1 to 7 here in Romans 13, challenging as it is, making it part and parcel of that whole teaching on love and what it looks like to love our neighbor. Finally, in this text, we hear a really clever linkage between this material here in 8 through 14 and the first half of this chapter, showing us, I believe, that Paul intends for us to hear verses 1 through 7, as we just said, folded into and of one piece with 12, 9 to 21 and 13, 8 to 14. So all of this instruction on love, this insertion of verses 1 through 7 in a Christian's relationship to government is supposed to be taken together as of one piece with that teaching. As we said last week, verses 1 through 7 leave a number of potential questions unaddressed. But they do set the the general standard for us with regard to how believers in Jesus should relate to government. So it gives us the basics, but it leaves us asking some questions, right? Right? Despite their fallenness, we nevertheless owe our governing authorities both direct and indirect taxes, as we talked about last Sunday. And we also owe them respect and honor, as these would be uniquely expressed by believers in Jesus. Don't you believe that believers in Jesus, when they respect and honor something, are going to look a bit different than this world does when they attempt to respect and honor something? So we owe them respect and honor as these would be uniquely expressed by believers in Jesus who are being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And yet questions arise. I would say that before the sanctuary was emptied last Sunday, the questions were starting to percolate. I was reminded of biblical examples where government was disobeyed to the glory of God. And such conversations continued through the week. I and the elders had a number of those conversations this past week, just as we pretty much knew we would in response to Romans 13, 1 through 7. And honestly, I appreciate that a lot. It says this, this body takes the word of God seriously. And I'm quite thankful for that. We heard, for instance, that when Peter and John were told by the elders and scribes and the, the high priests and others in Acts 4 not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, how did they answer? They answered them saying, Acts four nineteen, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Now granted, these were religious authorities in Israel that were being answered at this moment, not the governing authorities in Rome. But I believe this is an encounter where we can see an example of God's people doing something other than Romans 13 seems to command. And it seems like a good thing that they're doing. Those are the kinds of questions that Romans 13 raises. There's another example. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego defied the order to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Remember the story? Daniel chapter 3. They refused to bow down and worship at the risk of being cast into the burning fiery furnace as it's described in that text. Even so, Daniel records that they answered and said to the king, chapter 3, verse 16 O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Start. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, there's a grand example of doing something that it seems like Romans 13 says shouldn't be done. Paul himself had a number of encounters with the governing authorities in various cities that he visited on his missionary journeys that that we could include here as well as part of this list. But you know what's interesting to me? And I think it should be interesting to all of us. Do you know why we didn't mention any of these last Sunday? It's because surely Paul knew about all of them and many more, I'm sure. Yet he chose not to mention them himself. Or or really even vaguely allude to them. He, He gave no indication whatsoever that anything like this was on his mind. Familiar with it though he would have been as he wrote, verses one And he did that even though he was writing to the church that met in the capital of the empire while Nero was on the throne in Rome. That's why we needed to hear that text without any exceptions. Paul didn't introduce any exceptions. So we need to hear that. We need to receive that. We need to process that. We need to grasp that. Romans 13, 1-7 is the basic description of the Christian's relationship to government. We need to receive it and process it and grasp it before we're in any place to evaluate departures from it. Or even apparent departures. It needs to land on us so that we can hear it and respond to it, wrestle with it, and then see where God takes it. As one of our elders put it this week in those conversations I told you we had, he said, and I quote, we need to hit the note of submission to government from Romans 13, to 7, and to let it ring out loud and clear. A day will come when we must talk about civil disobedience and the exceptions to the rule, but I think it will serve us well to have a clear view of the rule, the rule before that day comes so that any civil disobedience we enter into may be done prayerfully and with the appropriate amount of fear and trembling. End quote. I love that. I say a, a hearty amen to that statement. That's what we're doing this past Sunday. But just a few moments ago we were talking about Paul's clever linkage of verses one through seven to verses eight through ten, which in turn then link back to nineteen or to twelve 9, twenty-one. We're talking about that clever linkage, he does it using that word o. Oh. Do you see it? You can't miss it from verse seven into verse eight. The play that he does on the word o. Oh pay to all what is owed taxes, revenue, respect, honor and then verse 8 opens owe no one anything and it could initially appear to us as though verse 8 is opening stating the opposite of what Paul has just said in verse 7 pay to all what's owed now owe no one anything well actually it's the exact same statement being made in two slightly different ways or we might even say just translated into slightly different ways What's essentially being said here in both places is leave no debt unpaid. And as often as people would want to try to apply this to economics and sort of how we manage our money, it really isn't talking about that. You could draw a principle from this that would find resonance in other places in Scripture, but let's let this context stand for what it is and not try to turn this into a a money management uh, uh, word of instruction. It's... I, I'll stop there. I'm tempted to talk for a couple of moments on that, but I'll just leave that that uh, right there and move on. The transition, though, from financial metaphor, paying taxes and revenue, and that's not just metaphor, that's straight-up instruction, that that's the way we show our submission to government. The transition from financial to relational, the respect and honor, happens before verse 7 even finishes. It happens in the middle of verse 7 in last week's text. And even though Paul gives this clever linkage using the the word O, he's starting a new section in 8. It's not not a new chapter. It's barely a new paragraph, but it is a new thought. The transition from financial to relational obligations has already happened before verse 7 finishes, but there's a sense in which we might believe our respect and honor for governing authorities is current, it's it's paid up. As our tax bill is paid up. But by contrast, and here's the contrast that happens from seven to eight, by contrast, we can never believe that our obligation to love one another is ever paid up. It's a debt that never comes to an end. It's not a burdensome debt. It's one of those sweet debts. It's like like eating and continuing to get hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. It doesn't mean they'll stop hungering and thirsting. They'll they'll hunger and thirst all the more as they taste and ingest a bit of righteousness. Same thing with love. There's never a way to finish loving one another. It's not burdensome. In fact, it's joyful. It's as joyful as it is unending. But it is an unending debt. And the on-ramp into that expression of an unending debt of love has already begun as respect and honor are are introduced toward the end of verse 7. Now, with all that in mind... Look what Paul introduces here in verse 8. All on his own, an exception, an except clause. And there's actually a fair amount of writing in the commentaries on how to translate that. Is it but or is it except? And it, except seems to be the way it should be handled. It's, it's an exception introduced by the apostle himself in the middle of this argument. As he broadens from subjection to governing authorities to include all relationships in the lives of transformed believers, he introduces this exception himself. Therefore, I propose to you that any exceptions that we believe are needful to qualify Paul's instruction in verses 1 through 7 should be qualified according to the exception that he himself provides here in verse 8. This is the exception. This is what helps us turn the corner. This is what helps us bridge the gap between what we just heard in verses one through seven and experiences like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is what bridges the gap. This is what helps us understand. This is what helps us appreciate the uniqueness of that expression of respect and honor that come differently from believers being transformed by the renewal of their mind and come from others who are just showing their support for government. There's something uniquely gospel about the way Christians do this. So after saying that any exception we introduce should anchor into the exception Paul provides in verse 8, we might say in other words, and most simply put, for us believers who live under the reign of Christ even while we're still in our sinful bodies living in the realm of Adam, any apparent departure, any apparent departure from our submission to governing authorities or to any other authority structure where we're charged in God's word to submit, any departure from our submission to governing authorities should be pursued as an expression of, not as an expression of disobedience, but as an expression of love. That's what's uniquely characteristic of us. There is no point at which we depart from our calling to love our neighbors right on up to our enemies. No point at which we depart from that. So any apparent departure from our submission to governing authority should be pursued not as an expression of disobedience of any form, But as an expression of love, the debt we will always owe to one another and to any other. Both are covered in this text. To one another or to any other. Anything done unlovingly, we know from 1 Corinthians 13, is empty and it's worthless. Should we ever be commanded by governing authorities then to do something contrary to God's word? We should see it as an expression of love. An expression of respect, an expression of honor. That we would choose to follow God and accept the consequences for doing so. What we've done at that point isn't political in nature. It's not civil disobedience. Rather, it is gospel in nature. Loving our neighbor. Showing genuine, 12.9, genuine, self-sacrificing concern for the well-being of our governing authorities by living a reminder before them that they both represent and answer to a higher authority and they will be judged for what they're doing. That's what the departure of the believer from conformity to government communicates and that's the motivation from which it flows. It's a genuine deep abiding love of neighbor seeking the best Respecting, honoring our governing officials by saying, You don't know what you're doing. It's Jesus' words from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't recognize that by requiring this, they are heaping up judgment for themselves. Perhaps our continuing on in the ways of God will bring that to their attention and enable them to see something that is a matter of great significance. So it's not a matter of civil or political expression. It's not even a matter of departure because what we're doing is holding true to the principle that motivates us what we're doing is holding true to the gospel, and we're continuing to love as we do it. The same then is true for church members who express concern for wayward elders, which has happened in several denominational traditions these days as as church leaders embrace the teachings of this age in rejection of the authority of God's word. The elders interacted just a, a a couple of months ago with the pastor of an international church here in the city they worked hard or here in the area they'd worked hard to raise the money and build a, a, a worship center that was now being taken away from them by their denomination because they were holding true to God's word in opposition to the denominational authorities it's it's happening around us The same is also true of the wife whose husband is straying to the point where he's introducing illegal or otherwise dangerous activities into the marriage or into the family. A biblically submissive wife, biblically submissive wife, shows gospel love for her husband by appealing to higher authorities in such circumstances. Never setting aside biblical submission in the process is jealously guarding the best interest of the beloved. It's motivated uniquely by a transformed mind and heart. And My friends, this line of reasoning goes all the way to the international activities of our governing authorities, I would suggest. Among the best books I have ever read in my life is one titled Just War as Christian Discipleship. By Daniel Bell. The author argues persuasively, I believe, that gospel defined love stands alone as the foundational principle on which any war can be identified as just. So that is to say, if it's possible to identify a war as just, this is the only basis for it. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, we read here in verse 10. Therefore, a war is counted just when it's pursued to alleviate harm or wrong being done to image-bearing creatures, regardless of whether they're brothers or sisters in Christ. The harm introduced by the war itself is justified as it removes the greater harm of injustice it was waged to address. We might also acknowledge according to God's word, that it's often through armies that the, inter, the intermediate judgment of God is poured out in this world. We have to work very carefully when we talk about topics like this, but it's God's word itself that puts them in front of us. And so those are some of the things we read in this text before we even get into the outline that's gonna walk us through it, Right. Now let's move into the passage for this morning and let's unpack it briefly in two parts and those are the two parts you see listed in your bulletin this morning. First, living out the heart of the law, verses eight through 10, and then living in the light of Christ's return, verses 11 to 14. That's where Paul goes in this text. So, living out the heart of the law, verse eight owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's where both the one another in the first half of that verse and the other is how it's actually in the original. Whoever loves the other, that's what suggests whether believers or unbelievers, whoever loves the other has fulfilled the law. In one sentence here then, Paul has tied together Old and New Covenant. This is one of those verses that puts them together such that we can see them and how they connect. In one sentence, he's tied together Old and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament, law and gospel. Just as Jesus taught. Recorded here in verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and any other commandment from God's word are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the great commandment by which the yet greater commandment shows itself. When you love neighbor as yourself, scripture says you fulfill the law. Paul wrote that to the Galatians. He writes it right here to the Romans. And this is the Principle: the expression of love by which the love of God becomes visible and evident. The only way anyone can know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength is to see in the real world whether you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way Scripture presents it. Paul took a sampling from the second tablet of the law here. To put in his readers' minds different sins that mistreat people. He went first to the seventh commandment, then to the sixth, then to the eighth, then to the tenth. And then he added, and any other commandment from God's word. This is what it looks like to be unloving to neighbors, is to go against that. In Psalm, verse 10, love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this is important, not because we are still under the law. Why are we talking about the law here? if Paul's already told us that we're not under the law any longer. We're under grace. Well, he's showing us the unity of the Testaments, and he's letting the Jews know, who are reading this letter, that he hasn't moved away from the law. This is the fulfillment of the law, just as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. So it's important for us because, as he wrote back in chapter 8, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. By the Spirit, we are enabled to obey the law, to be declared guiltless before the law. Obeying the law is not the aim. Obeying the law is the manifestation of our hearts being transformed into the likeness of Christ. We might even call this expression of love that's the heart of the law, you could call it the law of Christ. Just think of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. There it is, the law of Christ, capturing the sum total of Old Testament law and bringing it right into the New Testament through salvation by grace and faith alone and the inhabiting of the Holy Spirit such that we are raised from darkness to life and are now being transformed in our minds to live out the standard that was revealed all along and to live it out by the grace of God in Christ. John himself, who recorded here verses thir- verse, chapter 13, verses 34 and following, seemed to have written a brief commentary on that very principle in his first canonical letter. I'm going to read several verses from 1 John. We read several from chapter 1 this morning as we... Uh, We're hearing our word of assurance from God's word. I'm going to be reading from chapter 2 along the same lines that we've already heard. It's page 1021 in your Bible. You could follow along as I read and hear this as John's commentary on the law of Christ, on what Paul is commanding here. John wrote, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. So it's old. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. It's new because of Christ. It can actually be followed now. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. This is, by the way, 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11. I don't think I gave you the verses. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Descriptions that Paul is using right here in Romans 13. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this is what happens when the gospel takes root in our hearts. Our eyes are opened and we see the day this is what happens when the gospel starts to transform our minds. We begin to love just like Jesus loved and we continue to grow in that love. That's the mark of maturity in the body of Christ is to continue to grow in the love of God that's in Christ. and It just spills out and gets expressed to one another. And that just then continues to increase our love for God as well. Such that we turn away from the allurements of this world. Verses 11 to 14 now. Living in light of Christ's return. As we begin loving like Jesus, that just increases our love for God. Magnifies it. Causes it to grow. It's like pouring water and fertilizer on it. Such that this is beautiful, such that we turn away from the allurements of this world and are more and more and more captivated over time by Jesus' promised return. Start living in light of that. It really is as though, verse 11, we wake up from sleep. We have, we've been called from death unto life by the work of Christ and it's changed us within so that we love different things all of a sudden different things start catching our attention we wake up from sleep and we finally see the light of day verse 11 for salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed that could be a chronological statement but almost certainly it's primarily something else Christ has moved near to us in the gospel. And our longing for that day captivates our hearts and minds such that it's like we already have one foot there and are just continuing to exist and to move through this life. But more and more, our minds are being characterized by things above. We set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this transformation is happening within us such that our affections and our desires are are turning away from the darkness and toward the light it's like what happens with a flower sitting in the window when the sun comes up in the morning it turns its face toward the sun verse 12 the night of our struggle with sin we might say is far gone it's not as far as the east is from the west yet by our experience even though it is by Christ's declaration the night of our struggle with sin is far gone because we've trusted in him as savior and now we live under his reign even though we're still in this present world the day of his return is in effect at hand meaning nothing else needs to be done by God before that happens As Jesus taught in his Olivet Discourse about the end times, the cycle of familiar birth pains will just continue to intensify in severity and frequency and the gospel will continue to spread until Christ's return, which is the next thing on on God's revealed agenda. We're now in that unknowable time not knowing when the end will come, but knowing that these manifestations of the tension between this world and the world to come will just continue to increase. So we cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Isn't that an interesting way to, to state it? In a sense, this is the same as the, the armor of God in, in Ephesians 6, but it's, Paul's capturing it in a different way. We cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's, he's, he's talking to us, we just woke up, right? Verse 11, and, and so we take off our night clothes and we put on our day clothes, which are described as the armor of light, the armor needed for the day, the armor needed for the battle that we fight to keep the darkness at bay. We live in the light and we're clothed for the light. We're protected for the light. We're strengthened to live in the light. And even though Paul moves on to more particular, less metaphorical instruction, we could see verse 13, the next verse, as listing out what the armor of light might include. What happens to us as we put on the armor of light? What are the distinctive characteristics as God's people are clothed in the armor of light? especially since we also see the put on language again here in verse 13 and in 14 verse 13 let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality not in quarreling and jealousy do you hear what he's talking about by daytime there's a sense in which it's a lot easier to walk in the day because it's light and we're not going to stumble over things That's not exactly what he means here. There are things that are characteristic of the light, characteristic of the day. We behave differently when it's light and people can see than we do when it's dark and they can't. There's the kind of difference that Paul's talking about. And if we were to extrapolate just a bit, what he's saying is that when our minds begin to be transformed in this way by the, by the renewing work of the Spirit and the Word, the difference between our day walking and our night walking diminishes. It closes off. Such that even in the night of this present age that we live in, we're walking as citizens of the day, we're walking in the light even while surrounded by the darkness. That seems to be the way Paul's talking about it here. So let us walk properly. There's his word. That's how he captures that. Properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, all kinds of manifestations of the gratification of my fleshly desires. Not in sexual immorality or sensuality. This, by the way, is the part that caught Augustine's attention, his... Life was marked by this before coming to faith in Christ. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Not doing wrong to a neighbor, we might say, by pulling in verse 10. Not wearing the works of darkness, verse 12. But, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there is the one that just refreshes your spirit when you hear it. Now we're not talking about metaphorical armor that we might have a hard time wrapping our minds around. It's hard enough to understand the actual pieces of armor that are listed there in Ephesians 6, not to mention whatever the armor of light might be here in Romans 13. But by the time he gets to the end, he, he's, he's moved away from metaphorical description and just says, you know what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That is the armor of light, by the way. That's the armor of God. You want to put on the armor of God? Put on Christ. It's just being broken down into six component pieces there in Ephesians. Here it's stated as one clear statement Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the very person who went to the cross in payment for your sin. Live his life. Don't give the flesh a chance, is what Paul is saying. Think once again of the familiar statement in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. My life is finished. Which means my desires are finished. My aberrant yearnings are finished. We know that while we still live here they reawaken. So we continue fighting it knowing that what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporal. What is unseen is worthy. What is seen is unworthy. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm clothed in Christ. What we're saying is I'm so looking forward to Jesus' return that I don't even want those things that won't be part of his coming new world. I don't even want them anymore. Yeah, I still struggle to put them to death today and again tomorrow and the next day, but I don't even want them anymore I so love my neighbor that I I just don't have time to gratify myself. Or more accurately, I'm just losing the desire to gratify myself. I'm I'm losing the interest in gratifying myself. I want to enter into this love that is uniquely gospel and that has its most profound meditation Manifestation in the body of Christ that is together preparing for his return. My friends, this is what it looks like to worship God as a living sacrifice. This is what it looks like to be transformed by the renewal of your mind such that you approve by your very lifestyle. The good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This this is what it looks like. Exhibiting no conformity of any sort to this world. But being transformed increasingly into his likeness. And entering into the fullness of joy that is there together with his people. Most simply put, Christ like love increasingly displaces selfish desire. Wow, if I said one sentence this morning, that would be it. Christ like love increasingly displaces selfish desire as the motivating force behind all of our actions, all of our relationships, from from interpersonal ones within the body of Christ all the way up to our relationships with our governing authorities. It's made manifest there. And we might perhaps even add that by our faithful living of God's will in this world, we might even have an impact on the relationship between our government and the governments of the world. That sounds grandiose, doesn't it? But who are we serving? What is the power of God in and through the life of believing Christians who understand to this depth what it means to live a unique testimony in this day and age? One that isn't even thrown off stride by an oppressive government. When God's people are living otherworldly Christianity in this life it's going to show. And it's going to make a difference. Let's not be short-sighted on the difference it might make. Agreed? Let's pray. And as we pray musicians and communion service please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are lost without your word. Father, we are thankful for your spirit. Apart from your spirit, there is no understanding of your word. Nor any ability to follow it. Father, what we have heard here in Romans thirteen eight to fourteen, indeed Romans thirteen one to fourteen indeed Romans twelve one through thirteen fourteen is well beyond us, and yet, Father, it fires our imaginations that it is your word that communicates it to us and your spirit who has helped us understand and appreciate what we hear. Help us now, Lord God, to live into the inheritance that is ours in Christ, even now, while we are still under the realm of Adam. And as we eat and drink toward remembrance, Lord, I pray that that remembrance might show itself as obedience to Your Word in this very passage of Scripture. Glorify Yourself, Lord God, by showing us what this looks like, by enabling our lives such that we can test and approve the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Strengthen us by the very grace that we remember now through the body and blood of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.